Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, more than any other week, we're talking about words, what they mean, how they came to mean what they mean, and how, when we use them carelessly, words can really be quite mean. We'll be chatting with three guests, all writers, but very different ones, about how they use language, what they've learned about language, and what language really has to teach us about ourselves. From cruel etymologies. So he decided that these people all looked kind of the same and they all looked Mongolian and therefore categorized them as having the Mongolian form of idiocy, uh, which is to say Asian idiocy. To the musical history of slang. Boogie woogie. It really is an indestructible word. There's a, there's a hip-hop guy out there at the moment calls himself a boogie with the hoodie. It's just one of those words that will not die. To poetry and a sense of place. Perhaps like a lot of people who live where they don't exactly come from, I feel uncanny a lot of the time. In fact, I wonder whether I'm really here. I feel like a ghost. You'll be hearing from Jennifer Choi, an essayist, Max Charnay, a music journalist and word sleuth, and Andrew Motion, the former poet laureate of the United Kingdom, who has since slipped his homeland and settled in Baltimore, Maryland. Before we get to the good stuff, though, I wanted to let you know that Smarty Pants officially has swag. Our very cool logo, which came to us by way of a Transylvanian designer, now comes in sticker form. They're vinyl and attach quite nicely to notebooks, bicycle helmets, laptops, yourself, even walls, if you're so inclined. We're giving them out for free, and we would love for you to have them. So shoot us an email at podcast at theamericanscholar.org with your address so that we can mail you a couple stickers. And while your email inbox is loading, perhaps you could take a minute to rate us on iTunes. It's amazing what a few stars can do. Thanks. So in our summer issue, Jennifer Choi wrote an essay about being born with a blue butt. My Mongolian Spot hits on a lot of different subjects. Family history, Korean history, and the ugly history of racism in science, as well as body image and beauty standards. 
A baby's blue butt, it turns out, is never a simple thing when it has such an odd name, a Mongolian spot. Jen joined us from New York to talk about how the word Mongolian slipped into the name for a condition that so many babies around the world, on every continent and of every color, are born with. Thanks for chatting with us, Jen. Thanks for having me. So the essay that you published in our last issue, My Mongolian Spot, hits on a lot of different things, but it all comes from having been born with a blue butt. So when did all of the ideas for the essay come together? Well, I first learned about this condition, uh, the Mongolian spot, when I was a teenager. Uh, My uncles and aunts all had babies around the same time, and I would come over and take care of them, babysit them, change their diapers. Uh, And I noticed that these babies all had this blue birthmark on their bottoms, and I had asked my mother, what's the deal with that? (laughs) And she said that it was because we had Mongolian blood and all Korean babies were born this way. So uh, she really left out a lot of details about what that really meant. (laughs) And I kind of accepted that vague answer she gave for a really long time until a couple years ago when I decided to look into it because it sounded almost mythological. Uh, And certainly Korean Americans or other Asian Americans I talked to didn't really know about this condition. So I started looking into it uh, and why she might have thought that we had Mongolian blood and uh, basically unraveled this whole history relating to the condition to the name and how uh, it really is about how racism is built into language over time. Yeah, it has a a really complicated kind of ugly history involving a lot of unpronounceable German names. Um, Do you think you could summarize it for us? Like how did something, how did a condition that affects Asian babies of all kinds come to be called particularly a Mongolian spot? So... First of all, the condition is a birthmark. Uh, The medical term is congenital dermal melanocytosis, but it's commonly known as the Mongolian spot. And I think that's where my mother probably made a leap and thought that that had something to do with Mongolian blood. But when I started doing a little bit more research, I found out that a German doctor named Erwin Baltz uh, in the late 1800s was the physician to the imperial household in Japan. And he noticed these babies born with this blue spot on their backsides. And typically these birthmarks appear on the bottom or along the back or on the shoulders. And 90 to 95% of Asian infants are born with this. Uh, And then it disappears typically by age five, sometimes a little bit longer, uh, mostly by the time you've hit puberty. And... This was strange to me because the babies were Japanese and I didn't understand why they were then deemed Mongolian. And then I looked into it a little bit further and he was referring to a five race classification system that was devised by another German uh, named Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. And in 1795, he wrote this paper and basically posited that the human species could be definitively categorized into five groups. And the yellow race was the Mongolian race, is what he referred to it as. There's a Caucasian or white race, the Malay or brown race, 
the African or black race, the American or red race, and the Mongolian or yellow race. So this was very strange to me, and uh, it occurred to me that that meant that Asian people were considered Mongolian and just sort of broad stroke definition. And then I came across the racial classification of Mongoloid, which sounded like they were synonymous because it's often used in forensic anthropology into a three-race model, uh, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and uh, Negroid. And so that whole history I decided to dig into a little bit deeper and see what the connection was between Mongoloid and Mongolian. And that revealed a much darker history. Yeah, and it's a dark history that that lasts surprisingly long. I was really shocked to read how late this term persisted. I think you talk about it um, because, you know, Mongoloid came to be used to describe people with Down syndrome, right? And that description lasted until the 60s. Yeah. I mean, when I was first discovering these connections, it really shocked me because today our understanding of Mongoloid is twofold. You can consider it a pretty antiquated anthropological term, but we also understand it as a very pejorative term for those who are diagnosed with Down syndrome. And that connection to the Asian race is really not talked about very much. But basically, this English doctor in 1866, Dr. John Langdon Down, he was the medical superintendent at the Earlswood Asylum for Idiots and Imbeciles in Surrey, England. And he decided to classify the people under his care uh, by their physical attributes. So by his classification, there were several patients who had slanted eyes and they looked Mongolian, which is to say they looked Asian. But they were of European descent and they were perhaps blonde or blue-eyed or whatever. And so he decided that these people all looked kind of the same and they all looked Mongolian and therefore categorize them as having the Mongolian form of idiocy, uh, which is to say Asian idiocy. And the medical term for what he discovered would become trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome. But no medical qualifications or research informed his initial grouping of these people. So many, many, many years later, the genetic research supported what he initially understood. And the problem was doctors, scientists, everybody, scholars, they still wanted to call it Mongolism. Dr. Down supposedly never called his patients Mongoloids, but that's definitely where we get the pejorative understanding of that term. And so until the late 60s, prestigious journals, scientists were all using Mongolism with a lowercase m, a Mongol, uh, with a lowercase m, to define this genetic disorder. And of course, around that time, it became really uncomfortable for people who were of Asian descent who were working on this research, not to mention that Mongolia had become a country that was 
part of the World Health Organization uh, by the early uh, 1960s. And so the problem with using a lowercase m and a capital M became hugely divisive. And yet these doctors just really didn't want to divorce themselves from the words Mongol, Mongolism, because they just figured, oh, capital M, lowercase m, people know the difference. And they just didn't want to change it. And uh, at a centennial anniversary for Dr. Down's paper, these specialists came together and they really argued over it in a way that was just very alarming. I mean, one doctor said that what he believed was this controversy, it was an imagined difficulty. It wasn't a real problem. Only people were making a fuss, but it would just be easier to keep the name. And of course, eventually, his opinion was not considered as valid as, I don't know, people who are actually Mongolian. So eventually it became unaccepted and we've moved on and it's now called Down syndrome. But that history is there. And to this day, especially in Great Britain, we hear really vicious schoolyard slang still calling those with uh, learning disabilities, mong, like derivatives of, of mongoloid. And the history behind that really omits its connection to a racist history. Yeah, you you quote from these doctors. There's a Dr. Cummins, a Dr. Matsunaga, and a Dr. Penrose. And of course, I mean, just guessing by their last names, it's only the Japanese doctor who says that there's something wrong with using Mongoloid and Mongol. It's kind of surprising, but it you know it's something that we still see today. Definitely. I mean, the idea of an imagined difficulty, that phrase, it was just so painful to read because we are experiencing that today absolutely in different forms, but the idea of not looking beyond yourself. And the crazy thing is that my parents were born in South Korea. I'm Korean-American, and there are things that exist still in, in the way that we view our own bodies, let alone how other people who aren't of Asian descent see our bodies, but that I've carried this sort of ingrained racism in the way that I understand what beauty is based on the idea of these old notions that have stayed with us for a very long time such that we still use the word Caucasian and don't really know that that word in of itself has a history rooted in racial superiority. Right. So – then when I consider things that have happened in my own personal history and the way that I see myself and the way that my grandmother sees herself and our bodies, all of that is tied to this longer story. And in a way, looking into why we're born with these blue butts and this condition and what links us to this bigger narrative, it's, it's really important to know. I think. Right. And you end the essay with this lovely notion that in Korean, there's no word for this syndrome. There's no word for the blue butt, that it's just like normal. Yeah. I mean, when this German doctor first, quote unquote, discovered these blue butts, obviously they existed for (laughs) forever for Asian people. And they just didn't bother to give it a name because it's how we lived. And and I have an anecdote in, in the essay about how my sister in kindergarten, her teacher saw her butt and thought that it was a big bruise and they had to have a parent-teacher conference. And this is very common, actually, where even actually today, responses to the essay, a lot of people have uh, shared it and commented on it. And one common thread that I've heard from parents, they're like, we were so 
shocked when we saw this and we didn't know what was wrong with our, with our baby. And so today there's still a lot of mystery around it. Um, but it's been around and it will continue to be around. And uh, that's why my mom didn't really elaborate, I think, because this is just who we are and it doesn't need to be named or owned by anybody else. It's just how we're born. Uh, and it's almost kind of magical and mysterious. And and I really, it is pretty mysterious. I mean, it's amazing that we grow up not knowing this part of ourselves, such that, you know, I've talked to people and they don't even know that that's how they were born until they talk to their parents and their parents are like, oh yeah, yeah, you had a blue butt. <laughs> Jennifer Choi's essay, My Mongolian Spot, was in our summer issue and was also spotlighted on long reads. If you haven't read it yet, we've got a link in the show notes. And if you have and you want to check out some more mythical writing on the nature of having a blue butt, you can also check out Han Kang's The Vegetarian, uh, which won the Man Booker International Prize last year, and whose protagonist has a faint blue thumbprint left over from her childhood, which may or may not contribute to her slow unraveling over the course of the novel. I will say no more. Where we live and where we've lived over the years has a huge influence not only on who we are, but on the words we use. Our next guest, Andrew Motion, is the former Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom, a post that's usually held for life and which binds you pretty firmly to the land of your birth. But in 1999, Andrew accepted only on the condition that he do it for 10 years. And a few years after he stepped down, he did something even more unusual. He moved to Baltimore. As Langdon Hammer writes in our current issue, which features four of Andrew's poems, he is a quintessentially English poet, as reflected in the sources, audiences, style, and subject matter of his work. What happens when you transplant an English poet to American shores. I went up to Baltimore to talk to Andrew in his home, which is in the Fells Point district of Baltimore, an area of town with sweet old brick row houses on the harbor. It was a very British day, gray and raining, so you may hear some faint rain tapping against the roof of Andrew's house over the course of the interview. He made me a cuppa, and I asked him how he washed up on the Chesapeake Bay. Well, I came to read my poems at Hopkins three and a half years ago at the invitation of Mary Jo Salter, the poet, who was also then the head of the writing seminars. So she said, come and read your poems. Um, and I came for three or four days and gave some classes as well as giving this reading. And at some point near the end of my time here, she said, why didn't you come and work here? And I thought that's an extremely sweet thing to say. Um, but I, but how ludicrous I couldn't possibly do such a thing. But I went back to London, and as I was saying this to my wife, explaining to her that this nice offer had been made, I could f feel myself thinking, actually, that's a really good idea. To go is a really good idea. I'm, I was 62 years old. Um, I'd stopped being laureate in the UK, I think, four or five years previously. I had found other interesting and quite high-profile things to do, including and especially being president of a 
organisation called the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England, which is really an environmental thing. So I was I was busy. I was teaching. I had a job at the University of London, um, and I was doing masses of readings and running around the place and popping up and down on the radio and usual kind of stuff, sort of post laureate stuff. A lot of which I was very fed up with because I'd simply been doing it for too long, and I needed a change. Um, so that wish to have a change formed part of the decision to come here. My wife, who's actually Korean, Korean-American, born in Korea and came here in her early 20s, we'd met here. I mean, she became an American citizen in her early 20s. And although um, she had never insisted on it, there was some sort of understanding unspoken understanding that at some point since she had come to England to be with me after we'd met in New York I would then come over here it seemed fair <laughs> um, so I said to Mary Jo that I would come and then we had about nine months of getting ready to to come here and then suddenly the day arrived in which all our possessions were put in a gigantic metal box and that was put on a ship and sailed away to across the Atlantic to Baltimore. So what was it like to land in Baltimore? How shocking was it? Perhaps like a lot of people who live where they don't exactly come from, I feel uncanny a lot of the time. In fact, I wonder whether I'm really here. I feel like a ghost. That sounds uncomfortable, but actually it seems to suit me rather well, and it certainly suits writing. I feel I can float about and observe and not quite be seen. The thing that was driving me mad about living in England before as a writer was that I just felt looked at all the time. Everybody knew who I was. Nobody knows who the hell I am here. It's great. And now, oddly, when I go back to England, which I don't that often, but when I do go back, I feel I don't really exist there either. I've become completely spectral wherever I am on the planet. <laughs> um, not for everybody, but apparently for me. I feel like it's a rare American poet who gets recognised on the street, so that might be a British thing. <laughs> well, it's a small country, the UK, um, and the Poet Laureate is a very public role there. It's It's public and written about and talked about and visible in a way that it isn't here. Mm. Um, partly because you do it for longer over there. I mean, here it's a one-year or two-year thing. There it's it was for life until I took it on and I said I'd do it for ten years and then I would give it up, which is indeed what happened. But, for life, you get tenure. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody before me did it for life. You died in harness, but I said I'd do it for ten years. Um, and, of course, if you're busy doing it and if you interpret the role which I very much did, as having to do with proselytising for poetry, defending it, speaking for it, trying to think of ways of encouraging people to enjoy it who might not have access to it or have been put off it in school or whatever it might be. Um, that is a full-time job, and it was a pretty much a full-time job. And England being England, you have to take a lot of flack when you do that kind of stuff too. So all sorts of simply and purely great things about being here but to do with the city although I feel very loyal to Baltimore I think of it as home now um, I hope it's going to remain my home though I might go back to England to die if I see my death coming 
Um, but I do think of it as being home now. It, it is, as I say, a very complicated place. How do you feel your poetry has changed? That's hard for me to say. Um, it's probably easier for people reading it to say. But one or two things I can't help but notice. One, of course, is that a great wealth of new subjects, new geographies, have have emerged. Both new subjects and, and new, new geographies have become available to me. Um, I get out and about in Maryland as much as I can, so I'm not just writing about the city, but I've been trying to write about, about things in the locality as well. Um, the default setting of English poetry is modest, anecdotal, quite formal. The default setting of American poetry is identity politics. Um, you can't open a poetry magazine, let alone the New Yorker or whatever it might be, without seeing that. You can't stand under the great kind of Niagara outfall of a contemporary American poetry, um, which I have been trying to do without realising that the great majority of poems are in some sense to do with that. That seems understandable, particularly given what, all the things that we've just been talking about, and sympathetic and interesting. But I do sometimes wonder, he said in a rather British way, whether, in other words, I wonder quite a lot, um, whether a lot of the poems that treat those themes don't do so in a way that's too in the face of the reader for the good of the poem, by which I mean that newspaper articles, books of social history, history books, philosophy books, whatever, um, can wag their finger at us and say, here's what I think, here's my argument, here's my exegesis, here's my explanation of what's going on. And poetry that does that turns the volume down on poetry itself, I think. Poetry has to find another way of telling its truths than wagging its finger at the reader. It has to transfigure something. In other words, what I'm saying really is that quite a lot of these poems that I'm talking about reading, I, I read and think they're kind of the yelp that has been given by somebody because life's hacked them on the ankle in a particular way. Um, and I miss some transfiguration of that yelp into something more multifaceted and... We hate poetry that has a palpable design on us, Keats says in one of his letters, and that's holy writ for me. We do hate poetry, that, well, I hate poetry that has a palpable design on me. Um, I want the designs of poetry to be subtler. I want to read poems that go into their subject through the back door or the side door, or even down the chimney and not necessarily through the front door of that subject. It just makes the experience of being there richer. Or to quote one of your people, um, I mean, the very great Emily Dickinson, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. That's good advice for a poet, I think. It wouldn't be very good advice for a, somebody writing an article for a newspaper, but it's very good advice for a poet. Which poets working today do you think are coming at it slant-wise through the chimney? <laughs> um, well, the younger-than-me British poet who I think is particularly interesting is a woman called Alice Oswald, who is primarily concerned with environmental matters, but she treats them in very subtle, nuanced ways. And she's formally very inventive too. She's very interested in finding ways of writing poems that remind us how much 
the art form is involved with breathing. The spacing of her poems on the page is very interesting. Who do I like here? I was brought up on the generation of American poets, Bishop Lowell Berryman, Theodore Rothke. I mean, that, that was the lot that they were publishing when I was first reading poems. And, and they've still stayed with me in very big ways, Bishop, particularly. And of that lot, there's one that I'm, who's rather faded from view, who actually I, is a bit of a favourite of mine, a, a guy called Louis Simpson. Um, he's dead now. I mean, they're all dead. But he he started writing poems during the Second World War, and they're quite formal, elaborate even, his early poems. But they end up being extremely plain. And that I like that very much. I've always wanted myself to write poems which look like a glass of water but turn out to be gin. And he is good at writing that kind of poem. Oh, very British. <laughs> Well, uh, can you read us a little gin poem? <laughs> I will read you a bit of gin poetry. So, um, I'll read this poem, which I'm afraid goes on over the page, which is one of the t terrifying phrases to hear when somebody's speaking about a poem. The house we're speaking in is the house I live in, which is in the Fells Point district of Baltimore, the old shipbuilding bit down by the Inner Harbour. It actually is like the East End of London, um, before the Luftwaffe got to work on it. So I kind of recognise it. I feel quite at home here. Um, and every night in the summer, the police helicopter comes over. So this poem, which is in lots of little bits, begins with the police helicopter coming over and then takes that as a cue to kind of review the speaker's previous day or so, which includes reference to some scenes in Baltimore and some in the country around the city. And there are all, all these scenes are in some way or other to do with being surveyed or surveying, looking, being looked at, not being looked at, seeing things that are really there in present time and also seeing things which are there in other respects, historical time, invisible, visible Native American people in the woods. John Keats's brother, George, who when he came to live in America in 1818, got out of his boat down the road, at the end of my road. Um, which is a very nice thing for me to think about, since I have this thing about Keats. So, surveillance. Punctual as the evening star, a Baltimore police helicopter snoops over my head at sunset, and through its open door a searchlight points to me as someone who, in passing, came to stay. My day done returns again, and with it the wharf wreck that saw George Keats, brother of John, step down with a host onto these cobbles under this sun, the broken spars where he escaped the burden of society and slipped beyond the daily grind towards the Mississippi and the West. That sun today, that crashed sun reflecting off the bay, to double in the brightness falling still, divided up the air in silky strings, and so also made way for domino and under-armour, and the iron filings multitude of ships and docks and cranes around the bay to slither through, and after them a clipper and its crew, all busy with their afterlives, I also saw appear and disappear. But you know the wire. Everyone's seen the wire, 
And let me tell you, when last week a traffic light turned red in the middle of nowhere, my car was surrounded before I could disappear. I was listening to Kathleen Ferrier singing Das Lied von der Erde when they smote upon my window. But no problemo. I was given a safe passage after sharing a moment the beauty of those notes. If it's windy, you think you're going fast, but you're not moving, you're at 500 feet, and the searchlight definitely helps out when you can't find out what you're wanting, such as a suspect fleeing officers who lies in a park and throws leaves over himself. It's a different ball game from ground level. You can see his body shining like a torch under a blanket in the dark. You see heat coming out, or you have an officer hurt, and you control the scene and every light. Downtown is a heart and streets are veins. I watch the traffic flow and calculate its rate, a patient expert after months of training. What else was there to find today when I turned from Jerusalem, along gunpowder falls through trees, too close to enter otherwise, if not those maples and their shade, that blackbird on its throne of moss, that mushroom sunk beside itself, brown trout crisscrossing bearded stones like tricks of dusty summer light, and something I could never see that watched me through a froth of leaves and bided time until I reached the end of where I meant to be, then owned again the way I came. On the eastern shore of Chesapeake, a pelican pumps his elbows and the blossom on my myrtle shakes. The same soft wind has set me upright here, and fireflies wait on me, or would, if I did not already wait on them. Workmen in yellow hats like little suns, set in the windows of the new hotel. The chandeliers light up, the beds are made, the kitchen stoves burn off their film of dust, and soon the bright reception will sign in its first night cargo of new guests, to stay in time that runs in parallel to mine, and look, when they turn outwards to the world, at me and others strolling by as part of something not quite real, that only lives while they are here to see it, then becomes the sum of everything they know, and may remember of the streets and squares, where I continue with the things that pass away. You can find Surveillance, along with three more of Andrew Motion's poems, in our autumn issue on Newsstands Now. It also includes three little Fells Point songs, which take three different birds as their starting point, a favorite subject of Andrew's. Starlings are brilliant mimics. In fact, one of my favorite stories, bird stories, involves a starling who was kept in a lab in L.A., and one day it got a claw infection, and as the guy in the white coat came to give it a shot of something to cure it, it said, in speech marks, I have a question. This is a story I often tell my students because it seems to me a very brilliant illustration of what Robert Frost meant when he talked about the sound of sense, or the meaning of a poem. Our last little segment is about how words, along with their speakers, 
can jump from continent to continent, genre to genre, century to century, and wind up with really strange histories along the way. Max Descharnay is a Brit who still lives in Britain, and his new book, Vulgar Tongues, is an alternative history of English slang. He's going to close out the episode by telling us the strange story of how English thieves' slang made its way into modern American literature, and how sometimes these weird slang words change hugely, and sometimes they hardly change at all. Here's Max Descharnay. Many of the words that are used these days in hip-hop and rap music, which sound very up-to-date, but which actually, once you start looking back into their history, some of them go back to the 19th century. Some of them people are still using uh, thieves slang from England from the 17th century, words that were even old when Shakespeare was around. The word crib, calling uh, something your crib. Uh, 500 years ago in England, that was... You'd expect animals to be sleeping there, but by the time of Shakespeare, that could also be your home, just sort of a rough dwelling. And that was very well-established thieves slang by the 18th century here in England. And of course, in the 18th century, we had a habit of, uh, if you were a thief, or uh, if you were going to do something that society would object to, then if they didn't hang you, uh, then they might transport you to the American colonies. So imagine you're calling your home your crib, here in Covent Garden in London, which was a very, very dodgy district. Uh, Somebody puts you on a boat, they send you to Virginia or wherever it might be. You're not going to stop calling things by the names you know them. So that's how we can trace a lot of these words, seemingly indestructible words, coming over across the Atlantic. And then later on, things travel by means of music. If you hear a a record, it doesn't matter where you're listening to it, if if that's using the slang of where something uh, was made then it can jump a continent without any trouble at all. The word rap, for instance, if you look in the great 18th century English dictionary, Dr. Johnson's Dictionary from 1755, there's the word rap. Uh, The word hip-hop is in there as well. Uh, His definition of rap is to utter with extreme violence, uh, which always puts a smile on my face. And there's also uh, a dictionary of like North Country uh, English were Yorkshire-specifically sayings from the uh, end of the 19th century, and it's called The Wit, Folklore, and Customs of the North Riding of Yorkshire. Now, that's very much the countryside. That's uh, farming country and just people sitting in a little pub and having a chat to each other. And there's the word rap, uh, to have a conversation, to gossip. And I don't know if you're familiar with a, a Yorkshire accent, a rural Yorkshire accent, but you... The example they give in this dictionary is, uh, hey, let's have a pipe and a bit of rap. So that just comes off completely different to the word these days. Um, but you just imagine some sort of uh, hairy f- agricultural workers having a nice comfortable time by roaring fire in a pub after a day's work. And that was rap. But uh, these things started to get picked up. Rap shows up in an American crime slang dictionary from 1904 to sell somebody out to the police, to, uh, as we'd say over here, to shop them to the police. Then, of course, words travel by means of the blues and jazz in the 20s and 30s. A lot of the jazz musicians in Chicago, who were they working for in the speakeasy? They were working for the the mobsters. Al Capone was uh, running the places where they were playing for the customers. Or back in New Orleans, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, you were working in some very questionable uh, houses of ill repute. So the language 
that the criminals were using was crossing over and being picked up into the language that musicians were using, uh, particularly the blues and jazz people. And um, that really helped them spread. People like Cab Calloway uh, and his Cotton Club band, Duke Ellington, these people suddenly were making films in Hollywood. Cab Calloway made one in 1932. The other stars of that were Bella Lugosi and uh, W.C. Fields. Suddenly you could be watching that film anywhere in the English-speaking world and seeing Cab Calloway giving you straight-out Harlem slang. Um, the word boogie-woogie. It's just one of those words that will not die. And one of the others uh, is actually 18th-century English. is the word fly. That's in a 1785 dictionary by an English guy called Captain Francis Gross. He did a book called The uh, Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. And uh, fly meant exactly what you'd expect. It was somebody who was, who was hip, who was sharp. You, you couldn't put one over on him. That essentially comes into the blues culture. There's a 1920s blues song called I Ain't Your Hen, Mr. Fly Rooster. And yet simultaneously that word is still around in quite upmarket English crime novels. Uh, Marjorie Allingham, her her very, very rich crime hero, a man called Mr. Campion. I mean, he's re- he's related to the royal family. Um, and it says in a 1948 Campion story by Marjorie Allingham, oh, he's very fly as Mr. Campion. So you can have the wealthy English still saying that. Um, and yet it uh, very much was absorbed into the language of the black community. There's a DJ. He was quite strange. He, he was actually working... Uh, in Texas, uh, but he was he was uh, a black DJ in Texas in the 50s, uh, coming out with all this jive, and he put out, he called himself Dr. Hepcat, and he put out a handbook of jive, 1953. He was a boogie piano player himself. He put out a great single called Hattie Green in 1949. But then in, in his, his short slang dictionary in 1953, uh, he's giving examples of how to speak basically jazz, and here's one of them. Here's a cat that lays, lays a group of ivory talking trash and strictly putting down a gang of jive. The situation is much mellow. It's many fine and understand gates. It'll tighten your wig. And, and he's talking about the Jackson Jills from Fly Time Cribs. So there you have it. Crib. Fly. Um, hip-hop language. And he also had rhyming uh, couplets. This is one of his. And you could, you could put this out and put it to rap without any trouble at all. So this is from 1953. Um, Aces to your places, it takes bulling jive to keep the joints alive, like cool, frantic, and dead in the know, and some bronze kitty with a most able floor show, up in three places and let some pass, then pull into port where the cats are breathing natural gas. So that's Dr. Hepcat. So a man who came out of the late late 40s bop uh, situation, and the most famous guy that did that, who then went on to write about um, slang, this guy called Babs Gonzalez. He had a band called Babs Three Bips and a Bop uh, in 1947. And he wrote a superb autobiography. It came out in the 60s. He published it himself. Uh, and it's called I Paid My Dues, Good Times, No Bread, A Story of Jazz. And it's completely written in this sort of jazz speak. But uh, he did an interview uh, literally days before he died in January 1980. Uh, with a a newspaper called the Baltimore Afro-American. So bear in mind, January 1980, what has just come out the previous year, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Basically, the earliest hip-hop records were starting to come out. And this is Babs talking to that newspaper. 
uh, about his use of language. And he says, my thing is, as I was brought up on the streets as a rapper whose next meal depended on a clever turn of the word, and I figured I could rap as well as any of these cats could play their horns. So I started running down my rap on stage and the people dug it. Now, this is not some 20-year-old from the Bronx. This is a guy right at the end of his life whose career started when Charlie Parker was uh, uh, was the king. So these things did transfer across. That's what fascinated me. That's why I wanted to write a history of English slang. And by that, I mean uh, a history of people using the English language. It seems that some words are indestructible or that they can mutate. Some things, they, they completely change. 180 degrees, they mean a, they're still a slang word, but... They're, they mean the exact opposite of what they meant 100 years ago. I'll give you an example of that. The word groovy, which was a, a jazz word from the early 40s, if something was good, it was in the groove. Uh, you think about a record, if the needle's playing properly in the groove, that's fine. Everybody thinks of it as a 60s word, 1960s word in the hippies, and they just adopted a load of jazz slang wholesale. But what I loved, and I'll leave you with this one, what I loved about tracing all these different strands music words, crime words, words, terms for parts of the body, an awful lot of things I couldn't say on the radio. I knew that groovy was a jazz word from the 40s. I've known that for years. But I found it in an English slang dictionary from the 1890s. And it meant, basically, an old fogey, someone who was stuck in a rut, who was boring. And if you think of the days of horse-drawn carriages, you know, if you're going down an old, muddy, baked road, um... You can't go to right or left. You're stuck in the groove. Uh, and you've just got to go down that boring old road. For more on how the English language has been twisted into all kinds of shapes over the years, read Max's book, Vulgar Tongues, which is a pretty punny title for a pretty punny book. That's it for Smarty Pants. We'll be back in two weeks with a story about how tea changed the world. I've clearly been talking to too many British people, and how the world we're changing with pollution and ocean acidification is going to change the food we eat, and maybe even the books we read. Stay tuned for that. And if you're looking for more books to read in the meantime, pop over to our website, where we've got a gaggle of back-to-school favorites and watery reads to tide you over for two weeks. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.